0: It's the moment we've all been waiting for, Explain Yourself listeners. The launch of our website just happened. We're so excited to roll it out. We're going to be posting, of course, a little bit about ourselves. If you're new to the podcast, you can check out who we are, as well as giving you multiple resources from our minisodes to background on our guests.
1: Please go check it out and visit www.explainyourselfpodcast.com
0: the perfect place if you have questions or comments for us about the show or any of our episodes that we've posted or if you have a guest that you want to see you can go to our website under contact us and it'll send us an email or if you just want
1: to say hi we like those emails too Welcome back, Explain Yourself listeners. We are very excited for today's episode. We have Dr. Ashley Wellman, who has been a scholar specializing in homicide, victimology, and trauma since 2008. She's published over 30 research articles, has served as a national and international keynote speaker, and often appears in the media as an expert on these topics. As a widow and a single mother, she was forced to rebuild and redefine her life.
0: One of the ways that she's opened a new chapter and started to redefine her life has been through her newest children's book, The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. The book talks about how sometimes our greatest friends are the ones that we at least expect. Just ask the girl who dances with skeletons and her friend Fresno. Join them as they learn that new things don't have to be scary, our differences make us special, and that life is better when we are in it together. This is a story that celebrates the beauty of diversity, inclusion, self-love, and the power of friendship. This week, instead of Annika and I guessing as to what it is Dr. Bowman does day to day, we're going to let her dive a little bit deeper into the side of the true crime stories that we don't always hear too much about, which is the victim's families.
1: Ashley thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast how are you doing
2: I'm doing so good how are you girls we are good we
1: are ready with cocktails in hand to talk about some of our favorite subjects of true crime and spooky things and you know all
2: things relevant to this Halloween week episode I am so excited about Halloween. I have my red wine ready, so I'm ready to chat.
1: (laughs) I was just telling Julie that I tried to make a new cocktail to branch out. It's called a Wild Rose. It's got gin, dry vermouth, sweet vermouth, aromatic bitters, and orange bitters. But I had to top it with some tonic water because it was (laughs) a little too boozy for me. So we'll see if I make it through this interview.
2: We'll we'll hand it over to Julie if you, if you get too, too excited. Right. Julie, what do you have
1: in your, your coffee mug that I hope's not coffee? Correct. It is a hot toddy.
2: Oh
0: yeah. It's spooky season
1: so I can drink warm
0: alcohol
2: and I'm here for it. Well, my red wine is in a skeleton glass. So I'm very excited about that.
1: Yes. Where is that glass from? I think I need those. This is an oldie but goodie,
2: but I believe I got it at TJ Maxx or Marshalls. So, you know, you just got to keep your eye out. I think Pier 1, I think they went out of business, but they used to carry skeleton glasses as well. R.I.P. Pier 1. (laughs) I love TJ
1: Maxx. I was just there this afternoon.
2: (laughs) It's the best. Marshalls, I love all of them. You got to get the gift card, though, for all of them. I've made the mistake of only getting the sole gift card. It's very depressing. (laughs) Oh, yes.
1: Why do they even sell just a single gift card?
2: I don't
0: you know, know. Absolute. They're like TJ Maxx or a bust. Right. Yes.
1: <laughs> Good <laughs> luck. I friends with those people, but I'm sure they're out there. Yeah. TJ Maxx is my personal favorite because you get a mix of the home goods and a mix of the clothes.
2: Absolutely.
1: Maybe, maybe TJ Maxx will sponsor us now. <laughs>
2: That's right. Come on, guys. And the holiday goods there are amazing. So, you know, you, clothes hit or miss. They won't hire me. They'll hire you girls because you didn't say anything negative, but (laughs) 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 clothes are hit or miss. But I love when the seasonal stuff comes out. They always have the cutest, most unique things.
1: And so inexpensive too. Yes. We obviously talk about what you wanted to be when you were growing up. That's the premise of our show. We discuss what you wanted to be as a kid, how that changes throughout your life, and then what you're doing now. So tell us what you wanted to do when you were growing up
2: i was pretty confident i was going to be a broadway star that's what i wanted to be so badly i would watch a movie like the wizard of oz it's my favorite and if i watched it once i subjected my whole family to sitting and watching me recreate every scene of it and do all the different voices my current friends have to listen to me do it now but (laughs) but i really wanted to be a performer and i think for i'm 36 or 21, whatever you wanna tell people. But um, I'm 36 and I think for my generation, it was very much artistic things were not a career. And so that was something that was cute and fun, but let's buckle down and what's going to make you money. It was always about stability and financial security. And so one, I couldn't sing on demand. If you give me a part, I can fulfill the role very well, but I cannot audition to save my life with the musical portion. And so I quickly realized I was probably not cut out to be on Broadway and my parents were relieved. And so I went in to college with an AA degree. So I was a nerd in high school and I went to college my senior year. And when I got there at age 18 for my undergraduate career, they said, hey, Ashley, you need to pick a major right now. What are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to be on Broadway. So maybe something like broadcasting. And they said, no, you don't want to do that. I said, okay. Criminal justice is a passion of mine. Maybe I could be in criminal justice. They said, "No, you definitely don't want to do that because you would have to be a cop." And so, all advisors out there, quit crushing people's dreams. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's like I, they they had something in mind for you. Apparently. They did. They did. And so finally, I was like, "Well, I don't know if I want to be a police officer," and you know, so I said, Are "You sure I don't want to be a broadcaster?" And they said, "No, you don't want to do that." So I actually ended up being um, a public relations major. And thought I was gonna be this event coordinator, and you know I was gonna be this great wedding planner because everybody wants to be a wedding planner.
1: And I wanted to be a wedding planner at one point in my life, and my parents shut that down so
2: fast. I'm telling you, can you imagine? It would just be so fun, but then you got to deal with the brides. Maybe it's not that fun. But I wanted to do that, and so I, I, I went into public relations. I got a job at Barnes and Noble, the, and I was a community relations specialist. So I actually did all the American girl parties and book signings and oh, it was so much fun. And that was the start of my adult life was as a public relations person.
1: So you mentioned you're 36. So you were around during like the prime of American Girl. Oh like, my God. Have, Samantha? Like, yes. Samantha? Samantha all the way.
2: I'm telling you. And now we didn't have all the like American Girl stores and stuff. It yeah. was just the books. And then then the dolls came. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever got a doll.
1: I remember my parents made me save up my money. They were, <laughs> I think they were like $50, which at the time seemed like so much money. And they made me save up my allowance, which I don't know that I did anything to you even <laughs> deserve this money. You definitely
2: did and You did not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I bought Samantha and then, and then I would buy like the fake American girl doll clothing mm-hmm. because I didn't have any more money to buy anything
2: else. Yeah, they had babysitter club dolls. I don't know if you remember that, but I loved the babysitters club, which came back yeah uh, my Netflix. daughter's obsessed with it now but I, um, I I had a babysitter girl doll I think it was probably Claudia or something but <laughs> um yeah American girl parties they were so much fun they were so much fun and children's story time bizarre because that comes back full circle but yeah that was where I started as a as a career woman I was only 20 so I thought I was making 25,000 a year I thought I was doing so good oh my god it was great <laughs>
0: I have to just add a quick story that I it's one of those things that you promise yourself you will never say in public. But I'm gonna tell you guys, you're probably one of the people that ruined my life in the sense that I was really obsessed with Lemony Snickets, a series oh, of events. Yes. Book. And Barnes and Noble put on a like a release party for their final book and mind you i'm way too old and i maybe didn't know that at the time so i went fully dressed fully dressed as one of the characters begged my mom to drive me to the mall showed up thinking i would win first place in this contest where you got like this like gift basket of i guess really depressing gifts that like Lemony Snicket would have wanted. And I was the oldest person there. And then one of my teachers showed up and I had to book it out of the store. And unfortunately, um, my neighbor has photos, so I can't live it down. But it like, speaking of Halloween, the memory
2: of this is one of the most traumatic things to have ever happened to me. You might have won had I been your community relations manager. You might have won. I I remember the uh, Harry Potter parties and I was in full garb. I've never read a full Harry Potter book, so but I planned a damn good party. So I had all the drinks, specialty drinks, everybody had their wristband. We served all the jelly beans that taste horrific. So it was phenomenal. Oh, it was phenomenal.
1: She's like looking up spark notes to get the gist of Harry Potter so she can plan this party.
2: <laughs> I'm like, oh, what do I need to no, thank God corporate debut rules, but I, oh. I could execute like no one's business. <laughs>
1: So you mentioned as you were trying to pick your major that you were interested in criminal justice. What made you interested in that at that age?
2: So I grew up loving true crime. That was something, I am just a macabre, weird bird. If there's a square hole, I don't fit in it. I'm definitely the round peg. It just, I'm just weird. And typically that's a good thing. (laughs) So I grew up with my dad and, and if I couldn't sleep at night, I'd you know sneak out or you know crawl out into the living room and I'd say, Hey dad, are you watching TV? Can I watch TV with you? And we'd watch Unsolved Mysteries or we'd watch some police show or something of that age, the old Unsolved Mysteries that used to scare the bejesus out of me because I don't do ghosts and I don't do aliens, but I love true crime. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do criminal justice. And I always had this kind of passion to understand how and why crime happens. And so ironically, here I am, Barnes and Noble, you know creative little kid, working my first adult job. and one of the fundraisers I sought out for the store was that I wanted to raise a library for the police Athletic League. And so I had met with these law enforcement agents. They were doing such awesome work in the community, playing sports in the inner city of Jacksonville. And I, I sat there and I thought, my God, I loved being around them. I love being around them. And so I said, I really should have studied what my passion was and not necessarily what someone else told me to do. And so my parents kept telling me, you've got to go to law school. I was only 20 when I graduated. So they're like, you need to go to law school. You need to do something. And they would not stop. The moment they stopped asking, I took the GRE and I applied to graduate school and I uh, pursued a master's and a PhD in criminology, which is just the study of criminal behavior. And so in 2011, I graduated with my PhD in criminology and I specialized and have since specialized in cold case homicides, uh, the families that are left behind after a murder and sexual assault survivors. Very heavy topics. Yeah, all the lighthearted goodies that you could get yourself into. I right. <laughs> pursued that's all of them. All of the things that Broadway
1: was made out of anyway, so you could- Maybe
2: Sweeney either. Todd, maybe Sweeney Todd.
1: Yeah, that's about the closest thing to Broadway that you got is uh, maybe Sweeney Todd for sure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> maybe Beetlejuice has that been on Broadway or I think
0: it has I think it has think if not Broadway I can promise you that somebody's <laughs> done it in their garage alone <laughs> we did it we did it last night girls don't no, we're fine <laughs> I'm sorry to hit on this so often, but just like give you background, our intro for the podcast when we first started was all kind of like really what you're saying is like, we grew up with parents who were in the great recession and they were just kind of hitting a financial stride and had this stability that a lot of other generations hadn't. So they were like, no, you're going to be successful at any cost. And at some point that cost a little bit too much. um, And we're getting to our early mid thirties and realizing some of us chose careers that didn't quite match up. So all of this to say, what would be, if you have any, what would be like your biggest piece of advice to people facing a similar situation as you, where their parents think they should go into X, Y, or Z field or their college thinks that they shouldn't do a certain major? What would you tell them as your advice?
2: I think at 36, I'm still struggling with this whole idea because I'm a people pleaser I am a, I am just brutal on myself. And so I think the advice I would give, and I try to give myself daily is that at the end of the day, you're living your life for you and you have to deal with the good and the bad. And so, so often all we present to everybody is the good and we struggle and we have these you know, mental health crises and we struggle with being unhappy at work and we define ourselves by how much effort we're putting in at work. But if we're really unhappy, it has massive consequences in your relationships, at home, um, in the job itself. And so for me, I'm learning that you really have to stop trying to please other people and live life unapologetically with empathy for other people and with A goal to do good, but at the end of the day, you have to step back and you have to say the only person I look at in the mirror every night is me. And I owe it to myself to believe in myself, the way I talk to my friends, the way I talk to my child, whatever else it is, and pursue something that makes me feel alive because life is short. It is so short. And if you're doing something that makes you unhappy, it literally cost you significantly. So listen to your gut, turn off the noise outside and look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I proud? Am I happy? Am I doing what I want to be doing? And if the answer is no, dig a little deeper and say, do I have the guts to change it?
0: You are the guidance counselor that we all needed.
2: I needed this advisor. Mine, She's like, no, incorrect. You're wrong. So you
0: pivoted away from Your PR job, you got your Ph.D. From
2: there, did you specialize in anything? I did. So while you're getting your master's and your Ph.D., you complete your thesis and your dissertation. So you're really supposed to emerge with your Ph.D. as a, quote, expert on a particular topic. So here I am in grad school. Again, I'm forced with, hey, what do you want to do? Right. And in a day, you're supposed to be able to answer what do you want to be for the rest of your life? And so I really knew I wanted to pursue homicide. And I thought that what I was going to study was the case itself. And I was fascinated with serial killers, like everyone else who's in there, you know, (laughs) every other woman in the world. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to look not really at serial killers, but at homicide cases. And I really want to know kind of what makes a homicide either solvable or one that goes cold. And so I was very much thinking about it from a systematic point of view, a quantitative numbers point of view. And I called the local police department and I said, hey, I wanna come intern with you. I wanna volunteer my time as a research consultant and work with you. And they're like, absolutely not. So insert laughter, I literally was like, guys, come on. You want me to come work with you for free. And I'm gonna go through your cold case files, organize them for you. And you're the expert, this was key, you're the expert on the topic i just want to learn from you so of course i showed up day one with two dozen donuts and they brought me in every tuesday thursday for the next three years and let me come and work with them and it was the most incredible experience i worked with detective bob dean and uh, detective heather phillips down at the alachua county sheriff's department and they really gave me free access to their cold case unit and so I'm going through, and they're taking me into prison to interview suspects. And one of them was like, "Oh, I'll talk to that girl right there." And both detectives are like, "What? <laughs> she's she's a free intern." He <laughs> will not be talking to her. <laughs> um, he did. It was great. It was so great. It was like being in a movie. They let me help with DNA processing. You know, putting putting requests out for DNA processing, uh, organizing case files. Never in a million years did I think where I ended up would happen because one day we're working these case files. We're sitting in the office. We're probably drinking coffee, flipping through, through case books. And this mother comes in and she says, I just want to know what the fuck happened to my daughter. And everyone just kind of stared at her and she was crying. She had flown down from New Jersey and she had said, you're going to answer me what happened to my daughter. And so detective Dean grabs me and he says, Oh, Ashley i will talk to you for a little bit. And here I am probably 25 at the time. And I had never spoken to, in my knowledge, to a survivor of violent crime. And so I I run outside and I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Ashley. I don't really work here. (laughs) And we talked about her daughter just as a human being and how brokenhearted she had been for over a decade about the unsolved murder of her daughter. And at the very end of it, I remember saying, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that I can't give you an answer in this case. And she said, Actually, I didn't get on an airplane for an answer. I knew no one was going to give me an answer. I got on an airplane so that they would see my face. They would remember my daughter and they would be forced to talk to me about her and listen to me. And so that night I went home and I just felt so blessed that I had had this platform to have this dialogue with this woman who was so incredibly strong. And I started trying to research everything there was about the surviving families of homicide, or they're called survivors of homicide. And there wasn't anything. There's very few articles about traditionally solved homicide survivors. But in 2008, when I started this research, there wasn't anything about families who don't have an answer in their case and what happens to them with the grief, the loss, the trauma, interactions with the media, the police. And so for the next three years, I completely changed again, kind of what my thought process was. And I started researching and interviewing families and becoming an advocate for those who had lost someone to homicide and their case had been unsolved. When I got into being a college professor, because that's what you do with a PhD, sexual assault survivors became another area that I was just super passionate about because unfortunately, college campuses are a breeding ground for sexual assault. And so I said, okay, I have the advocacy hat on. I really have some weird empathetic connection with survivors. And I would love to use that to, to help these you know men and women on college campuses. And so that's kind of the path I've been taking, working both with the families of homicide and the survivors of sexual assault.
1: It kind of blows my mind that in 2008, there was not any research on that because that it wasn't like that was ancient times. A lot had happened. There had been many homicides up to that point and a lot of huge cases up to that point too. So it's crazy to me that there was nothing, no research.
2: There wasn't. And and the reality was, is our clearance rates in the 60s and 70s used to be in in the 91% area. We used to solve almost 100% of the cases every year and about 91% a year. Now, it's like 60 to 64% of homicides every year are solved. And so the number of survivors, if you just said, like, let's say on average, there's about 14,000 murders a year. Each murder is going to have three to seven intimate family members associated with the case. And that's a conservative estimate. That's so, I mean, the lowest that could be is every year, 45,000 people are left with an unsolved homicide of a loved one. And that is like lowest, 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 conservative estimate. And so I thought, how is it that this group of victims, because that's what they are, doesn't have someone voicing any kind of plea for these families, whether it's compensation, how to work with law enforcement to get your case heard, how do you speak to the media to try to minimize the trauma of the media interactions? no one was researching it. And so now if you look, there's several scholars that are starting to look, but again, it's a very, very small body. But when I was researching, there was, I think, one article I could find directly on the topic. And it was just cold case survivors, which just a very small part of the article. And I went, bingo, this is, this is it. If I'm supposed to be an expert on something, this is it.
0: Because You recently released a paper about, right?
2: Can you yeah, absolutely. You about that? Absolutely. So Every year, the the interesting thing people don't understand is as a professor and as a scholar, I'm often, um, people just think we teach in an ivory tower. We don't. We're responsible for scholarship and research to be published every single year. That's something that we're we're accountable for. uh, Service in the community is something that we're accountable for. And so I have branched off a little bit, particularly in the last couple of years, to do a little bit more lighthearted stuff like slasher film analyses and things like that. But the latest article that I published was actually with my brilliant colleague on this topic um, of homicide. My brilliant colleague, Michelle Meidel, Dr. Meidel, she's phenomenal. We actually published a piece about the relationship with law enforcement and how families have to balance a lot of complex ideas with law enforcement if they're dealing with them. Let's imagine you're a cold case survivor. You don't have answers in your case. There's a lot of resentment and anger with law enforcement because they are the key to solving your case. And so if you don't have a solution in your case, you blame the police because they didn't do their job. They didn't solve the case. You don't have an offender to be mad at. You can't be mad at anybody else. So usually the police get this, this resentment and frustration. But at the same time, the families struggle with exactly what that first mother I ever interacted with knew. These people have to care about me and they have to care about my daughter. And so I have to have a healthy relationship with law enforcement or else they may not work my case. Now, is that true all the time? No, if there's a case that has good evidence, the police are gonna be all over it. I don't care what the relationship is. But when you talk about a cold case file, I remember in Alachua County, we probably had 30 some odd cold cases that went back to the sixties. So of course we're working cases that have the most evidence. But at some point too, when a mother is so loud, when a dad is so loud, when a sister is so loud that you know your phone is going to ring every morning and you're going to have to answer to this mom, then you actually give it more attention. I mean, that's the human nature of it, right? I want to tell her something because regardless of the situation right now with law enforcement in the country, I have never seen heavier hearts and more dedicated human beings than the detectives I work with trying to solve these cases. They had pictures of the victims on their desk. They would close the door and cry when something went wrong. I mean, there was a big human element to this. Families are depending on them for answers in their case.
0: Well, I see, you know, being a big true crime fan, but not working in that area at all. All I see or hear are the families who come on podcasts and talk about their families, or we're seeing reenactments of the family's relationship with the police and from somebody who hasn't, you know, fortunately, been in that situation, it does come off as like, oh my gosh, it they're passionate, but it seems misdirected. But because we're n- maybe not putting ourselves in their shoes and saying, okay, absolutely, what would I be doing if this were me? Because I would probably be breaking down the door if that was somebody I knew. But just like seeing it on the television where everything's crammed into thirty minutes, you're like, wow, that's
2: that's an aggressive stance that they're taking um, from the family's perspective. What yeah, are you that, yeah, I think. It is this it is it's heavy because families face these decisions. Like, are you going to just quote move on? Which it makes me want to throw tables over, right? Like you can't move on. You can move forward and rebuild a life, but you can't move on from trauma. And I don't care what kind of trauma it is. It's part of your story. The reality is is families feel so convicted, particularly in a cold case. As the time ticks, more and more murders are happening, more and more burglaries are happening, all of these things are happening that they know the police are getting pulled towards. And so my case just gets further and further pushed back because it's dead, no pun intended. It is dead, it's like back pushing back. And so I think there is this heaviness and this feeling that if I don't fight for this, they will be forgotten. Forever. And there's this feeling, especially from a parent's perspective, like it is my last duty to get my child justice to say that this case is closed and that then I can start to process and move forward. And so it's just heavy. And then then there's this reality that law enforcement can't tell the family everything. And law enforcement can't always give the answers that the family wants. And so they struggle with their own balances of saying, okay, I would love to tell this family this, but I think their son might be a main suspect. So I can't, you know, and they can't really say that to the mom. <laughs> so there's just a lot of heavy things. Or why isn't the case getting prosecuted when we think we know who did it? Well, the reality is, is, you get one shot in America. There's no double jeopardy. You get one shot to try this case. So police know if the prosecutor says you don't have enough evidence, we're not pushing the case forward because if we lose, we could have a murderer walking free.
1: Do you feel like the rise in internet sleuths and attention some of these cold case files are getting has impacted whether the cases are getting solved? Like the one that comes to mind to me is Up and Vanish. Up and Vanish, oh my God. Yes how that case went unsolved for so long, somebody brought it to the attention of a podcaster and they've essentially solved the case now. So how do you feel social media has impacted kind of the relationships between these families and law enforcement? And do you like that there's internet sleuths out there that are kind of inputting themselves into law enforcement's roles?
2: Yes, yes, yes. I don't know that law enforcement likes it. (laughs) But yes, yes, yes. and that's a lie, because they do. We've seen, historically, that these internet sleuths, families who take to social media, they get the job done. And that's one of the crazy things. If we just talk about it from the family's perspective, one of the roles that a family member will take on is that of detectives. So it's interesting because some will become the healer of the family. Some will become the media spokesperson. Some will become the um, advocate. Some will become the sleuth. And so I've had families who are the ones who are the ones that bring the key piece of evidence to the police. And they say, please look at this person I have talked to who knows that victim best? Their family. Who knows that victim circle the best? Their family. And so uh, actually one of my dearest friends, um, Shelly she her son was murdered in Kansas City and she was one of the ones who um, actually helped solve the case. They hired a private investigator and um, it was just amazing because she had told the police from day one, I know who did it. It was about six years later, seven years later that the case got solved because of her private investigator. Sure enough, it was the man she had said. There was another dad who took to social media when his daughter was murdered and begged everyone, please pay attention, please pay attention, please pay attention. And she he kept giving clues from her, you know, text messages and all of these things. Sure enough, someone private messaged him and said, I know who it is. I don't want to say it. Like, how do I make sure that I'm protected? And they were able to get this individual to disclose the identity. And then you have, like you said, up and up and vanish. Don't fuck with cats. Like all of these amazing moments where people are saying, I'm going to figure this out and they're going for it. I think the sad thing is that, especially in unsolved murders, because it's so long long from the, from the original murder, we forget about the human who's the victim so much, about the dignity and the respect that that victim deserves. And so you see all these nitty gritty sexy details come out about the victim. And it, it makes sense because one media is craving all of these details. But I think what's kind of tragic is you can listen in some some of the media presentations, like even the, the Murderer Next Door, the one on Netflix right now um, about Chris Watts and the way they talk about the wife, that she was just terrible, she belittled him, she was abusive, she may have been, And there's no excuse for being an abusive partner, but that doesn't mean you deserve to die. You know, and there's a lot of victim blaming that goes on. There's a lot of really dirty historical details that come up about an individual because we don't know if they're relevant or not and they're sexy. And what's really difficult is I listen to some of these things and I always put myself in the position of like, what if I was running for as a politician or what if I ended up as a murder victim? Because I know every single one of us, if you said from the day... I turned, I don't know, 14. I mean, I hope people aren't doing really (laughs) things before then, but I can't imagine some of the ways that events that I've done that were not necessarily good decisions could be spun to just make me look like a horrible human. When everyone who knows and loves me would tell you, oh, she was a great person. And you hear that all the time. She was so good. She was so loving. And then you're like, oh, she was sleeping with all these men. And, you know, she had smoked weed all the time. No, she didn't. She tried it once, you know, but they... They paint them as these villains because I think it allows people to keep a distance and feel safe like that wouldn't happen to me because she was a quote prostitute no she wasn't you know <laughs> she wasn't she went on a date with a man had sex with him that's not. prostitution. <laughs> so. It's interesting because I love the media portrayal. The media really is one of the other big keys of solving a case. Again, just like the mother who said, I will not be quiet. I'm going to be so loud. They cannot look away. That's what all of this media attention does. It's so loud that the pressure to really focus energy, time, resources, money on the investigation becomes impossible to look away.
1: Just a side note, I don't know if I was living under a rock when the Chris Watts thing happened, but I had never heard of it. I watched that like two days ago. Oh my god! I think what you said is interesting about them portraying her as pushy, and because I literally was just talking. What to a- wife
2: is not pushy? Hi. My yeah, favorite I was, role was pushy wife. So let's I was like, hello,
1: I would be that way too. Like, do do the shit you're supposed to do.
2: Amen, that's right. Can you quit being lazy? Let's right.
1: go. I'm like, honestly, that's probably how
2: I'd be portrayed as well. I don't know another mother out there who doesn't get into tiffs like that with her husband about like, pick up this slack. I'm doing 90,000 jobs and I need you to do one. So can right. you?
0: if my life had like a credit afterwards, it would be like pushy wife. Julie, like that's my role in my own movie.
1: We talked a little bit how you chose these focus areas. What did you do after you finished studying those? You graduated. What was your path forward after that?
2: Okay, so right before I graduated, it was probably 2010. I graduated in 2011. In 2010, I met the most incredible human being, Buddy Wellman. And he actually worked for the University of Florida athletic department. And I was at the University of Florida just as a graduate student. And I was tutoring some of the football players in statistics. And I remember walking into the copy room one day and hugging him for way too long, like the friendly hug that they pat your back to stop. And I didn't stop. So eventually, he just hugged me back and (laughs) I walked upstairs. And um, I would marry him exactly one year later on April 30th, 2011. And I graduated in August of 2011. And I remember sitting across the table from him back in 2010. And I said, you don't want to marry me because I have to move somewhere around the country. You don't get to pick as a professor. It's very, very competitive. And it's kind of like who has the opening with your specialty, you know, and, and the rank that you are. And so I said, I don't know where I'm going to end up. And he said, that's okay. I have nothing else going on in my life. I'll follow you. So uh, I married him and we did the very first place we ended up was at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. I thought it was going to be an amazing fit because I'm a Southern girl. I'm a Marine's daughter, but I'm also a woman with an opinion. And let's just say as a young woman with an opinion, a military school was not the place I needed to go. I still remember their save the males shirt with a no through a girl with a ponytail so like no girls allowed and uh i was only there for a brief two years and so (laughs) we moved from charleston over to uh, missouri i was at the university of central missouri from um, 2013 to 2018 and in 2000 like let's say 2016 I was so lucky because I had the most beautiful baby girl with Buddy, her name is Reagan. And in 2016, she was about two and we had really come to this idea, okay, we're gonna have a second child. I don't know about you guys, but I have planned my whole life from start to finish. Every moment is planned out on a timeline. It never happens the way it's supposed to. But it doesn't stop me from always plotting like every 10 minutes of what's gonna happen. So I had Reagan in 2014, 2016, I said, it's time for baby two. And we had been so easily easy to conceive a baby that I said, it's gonna be so easy. Well, we had four miscarriages back to back to back to back to back. And I really lost myself deeply in that moment. Um, and I remember my my husband saying, Ash, I don't care like what else is happening in your life. I really need you back because my relationship with him, my relationship with my daughter, it was just very strained." And I said, I think I need a change of scenery. And he's like, then let's do it. Drop, drop everything. You could be a barista. I don't care what you want to do. Like, let's just move. And so we did, we started putting feelers out and I met um, with some people from my school here in Texas. And they said, you should come. you like, I was going to have to step down significantly from my tenure track position to an instructor position. Very stupid. When you look at the academic field, people would tell you I was crazy. But I remember looking at Buddy and saying like, I cannot do this. Like I had another offer to go to an R1 university with tenure. And I was like, I can't give that up. And he said, yes, you can, because you have to go where you're going to be happy. Again, that advice we said earlier, right? You have to go where you're going to be happy. So I did. We moved um, here in 2018. And the day before I started my new job, glass shattered downstairs. And I called out to Reagan, like, what did you break? I knew my daughter had broken something. She didn't. Um, I ran downstairs. My husband had actually pulled a picture off the wall and had collapsed and he was seizing on the ground. And I had no idea at the time, but he had actually had a pulmonary embolism. And so he couldn't breathe and my daughter and I watched while he died in our home. I followed him to the emergency room. They brought him back four times and then they pronounced him dead at 4.30 on August 12, 2018. And again, I was at this crossroads in my life of like everything I thought had been important up till now is either gone or it's worthless. So all the things that I had been putting so much of my time into, making sure I got tenure, making sure that my title was something I was proud of, making sure that I had accolades on my paper meant nothing. And everything that did mean something to me, motherhood, wife, all of this other stuff was gone. And so I remember thinking like, if I could just throw myself back into work, I'd be great. And then you fast forward a little bit. And I found out very quickly that grief changes the way the world looks at you and the way you fit into the world. And so I got actually barred from a job that would get me back up to my tenure track job. And I really remember just sitting in that moment, like, if this is not who I am, if I'm never going to be that great scholar, because people are not going to allow me to get to that path, then what am I? And I remember just being like in this dark, like the darker than when my husband had died, kind of being like, I didn't have any legs to take out from under me. And now more legs have been taken out from under me. And so I remember sitting there just like hysterical. And one of my friends said, okay, I'm like, I'm, I'm done now. I've let you grieve. And I've let you do all this stuff. I'm done because you're full of <laughs> shit is basically what he said. And he's like, you get to decide what you are. Nobody else. So like, let's say that position's gone. That was unfair. That's not right. They didn't react the way they could have or should have. But you get to define who you are. And you're letting three people define the way the world sees you. And so he said, so what are you going to do about it? And I went, well, shoot. And that's when the really hard work started.
1: So you have this moment where you have a very traumatic event happen to you. And you have obviously a past of studying trauma. Did any of your experiences with what you learned in school and what you researched, help you kind of going through that point in your life?
2: Yeah, I remember I absolutely yes, that's an amazing point. I remember When he died, I kissed him goodbye. And I said, like, I'm going to make your daughter have a magical life. She's going to have a magical life. And then I thought, I don't know how to do that. And I just kind of went back and really struggled for the first week or two of like, I don't want to get out of bed. And I was like, you have to, you have a child who needs you to get out of bed. I thought, what what did you tell other families to do? And then I had to think, I hope that that's good advice. (laughs) I hope what you've been telling all these families is good advice. And so I started thinking, what have you told them? And I remember how much I had emphasized the importance of grieving as a human being by yourself as an individual and the importance of also grieving as a family. And so instantly I said, I cannot pretend like nothing happened because I have a four-year-old child who just lost her best friend too. And I need her to see that grief is messy and grief is scary and grief is ugly and it's also kind of beautiful and complex. And so I made sure I got individual help. I went through EMDR therapy, which is a rapid eye movement therapy. It was amazing and allowed me to reprocess. The, there were two scenes that every time I closed my eyes, I could see him. It was him lying on the ground seizing. And it was them doing CPR on him because it's so much more violent than what they show on Grey's Anatomy. And so those two just kept kind of plaguing my brain. And so EMDR saved me. I got Reagan into her own children's therapy at a grief house near us, which was a, a miracle. It's called the Warm Place in Fort Worth. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, but then I really had to make an effort to say Reagan's going to see me grieve, and I'm going to see her grieve, and we're going to do it together as well. Because we may not grieve the same, and likely we won't. But I want her to know that when she's sad, it's okay, and if two seconds later she's happy, that's okay too. And then it's kind of this roller coaster of emotions because. One of the things that I had seen so vividly and eventually wrote a paper about was that my families would fight fearlessly to defend other family members from the pain they were feeling. And so they would say, I don't cry at all, except when I drive to work. I don't voice any kind of concerns unless I call my best friend. Like, I don't want my kids to know I'm hurting. But then I would interview the kids and they'd say, you know, my mom doesn't even care. It's crazy. Like my mom doesn't even care. And I remember thinking, oh my God, if you had just heard your mom, like she cares so much. Or my dad is like this tough guy. He never cares. And the dad literally couldn't get words out because he was crying so much. And he's like, my girls have never seen me cry. And I just remember thinking like, okay, Reagan has to see the good, the bad, the ugly. And so I did that a lot. And that's something I would tell anyone who's grieving. You have to grieve by yourself, but you also have to vocalize the grief as a group, and you have to be open and vulnerable to other people where they're at and meet them where they're at, because we're all kind of different in our in our grief structure. I had also told people about the importance of creating new things in your life, because so many times, and I was doing the same thing, I fought fearlessly to be the old Ashley in the by walking back into the classroom, because that was my safe space. I was like, I didn't get on Broadway, but I perform every single day with 160 students. And I love it. I love it. I love it. And so I said, if I can get back to the old Ashley, then I'm going to be fine. And I remember the, one of the three colleagues who just broke my heart at work said, um, you're not the woman we fell in love with. And I remember for three or four months, just like every time I thought about that statement, I would cry and I would fight it. And I'd be like, what are they talking about? I am her. I am her. And finally, I hired a therapist and that was one of the first things I talked to her about. I was like, that statement was ringing in my head. And she said, would it be okay if you weren't her? Like, what if you weren't her anymore? And I went, oh, you know, she said, because grief has changed you. Trauma changes people. And she said, it doesn't mean all the amazing, beautiful things and that your story is not there, but you don't have to be the same girl you were 15 minutes before he died. And that's permission to change. And so I think that was one of the things that really stuck with me and allowed me to start to see the world differently was that I don't have to be that same person. And I also don't always have to just identify as the widow anymore. And so I would tell people that, right, you need to identify new roles, new traditions, new permissions in your life, and don't feel guilty when you celebrate or when you smile or laugh or go out for wine with friends. And I think the world doesn't do that for you, right? So if I'm out two months later, at an event, right, people are like, whoa, she must not have loved him very much, you know, or there's like ways to quantify all of the feelings you have for somebody. And the reality is, is that that's not true at all. It's that you're struggling to say what's my new life look like. And so that was one of the best pieces of, of advice that I think I had given to other people and said, like, okay, I have permission to be happy again, to grieve when I need to, and to rewrite the story, however, I want to rewrite it.
0: Having your own story now and not a hundred percent being able to relate to uh, the living victims of the homicide and the families that you know get left behind in the aftermath of all of this. Did your master's or your PhD cover the psychology of this at all in a way that makes it relatable to handle if you're dealing with you know the family members?
2: I don't think really anything can prepare you. I think the work that I had done in yeah, you know, it's like any other thing, right? So people get out of their college degree. All my students right now, they're like, oh, I want to be a criminal justice. I want to be an attorney. I want to be a police officer. You cannot teach those kids to enter into a workforce and be trained to actually do the job. You know, even an accountant, all these things. You learn on spreadsheets. Wherever you end up in life, whoever's your direct mentor is going to be teaching you how to do it. And the more and more you do it, the better and better you get at it. And so I think what was interesting is that I was going blind in my graduate studies. I remember one of, the, one of the professors said, if you wanted to study homicide, why did you come to the University of Florida? No one here studies it. And then my incredible mentor, who's a sociologist, she's not even in criminology. Her name's Dr. Marion Borg. She's one of the dearest friends of my life right now. She said, hey, I'll be your mentor. I know nothing about <laughs> what you're studying. But the cool thing about getting your PhD is that you're supposed to be becoming the expert in the subject. And so she said, "I want to learn with you. And if you want to go on that journey with me, I'll learn with you, and I'll kind of, of do, you know, your your PhD with you and help you get your your dissertation done. And that in that moment, even that. And let's back up a little bit. Academ- academia is such a weird breed. It's it's so dry. People are so serious. It's always about you know esteem and and who you are and ego." And I was so different. I never fit in in the first place. I remember Marion, I was very young in my, I I might've even been in my master's degree. I had first met her taking a class with her. And and she said, oh yeah, you know, I have two little girls and don't tell anybody, but my focus is my family. And you know, this, this, and this, and she was just so real as a human being. And I said, that's who I want to be. If I'm going to be an academic, my family's always going to be my number one. I want to be involved in the community and whatever else comes, comes. And so um, can it prepare you? No, I don't think so. I think the experiences I created prepared me for understanding individuals and the more and more stories I heard from families the more and more I connected to humans, which is also ironic when you're a scholar, you're told don't get connected, don't. I remember the very first study that I went out, I went and did an interview um, with the very first family and I had a script and i read line by line because all of my classes had said do not get attached to a subject you were just supposed to ask questions and get data and leave and i remember she started talking and i just started crying and then i was like i'm blowing it i'm a terrible scientist and then i thought if i didn't expose my vulnerability and i wasn't human i wasn't going to get the story that she needed to tell and that i needed to hear and so i just kind of threw the rules out the window that's like my new it's weird because I'm a type A OCD rule follower. And yet so many times in my life, I just kind of say, screw it. (laughs) And I'm going to do it my way. And I got the richest, most genuine stories of my life because of that attitude. And I think, I remember this one dad said, I don't want to talk to you. I was there to interview his whole family. He's like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't talk about this. And I said, that's fine. No worries. You know, and I was talking to his wife and he was kind of listening from the kitchen and then a few minutes later, he's like, I'm not, I'm not talking to you today. And I was like, I know that's okay. And then a few minutes later, he's like, mm, maybe I'll talk to you. Right. And, and I, he took me outside and he started crying. He's like, I just don't talk about it. And my girls never, I never talk about it with my girls. And, and then he said, are you religious? Yes or no. And I thought, oh, you're never supposed to like throw personal things in there. And I said, I am, um, I'm very spiritual. And I said, religion's hard for me, you know, but I said, I believe in, a higher power and I believe in Christ and you know, whatever. And that's my belief. And then he said, can I pray for you really quick? And I went, oh my gosh. And I never, I'll never forget. He prayed just for like, thank you for her voice and for what she's doing. And I wrote that down in the front of my journal. And every time I went on an interview, I would read that prayer in the front of my journal. And then I would go and do the work. And it was, it was so crazy because I don't know that it would have mattered what my answer was, but because I was willing to to answer, he unloaded his entire heart with me and it was this amazing human bond. And so that's been the greatest thing. And that's why I share my story now, it is hard. It is hard. A friend just asked me like, hey Ash, do you think maybe the reason you struggle sometimes is because you share trauma so much? And I said, yeah, but I wish I had heard other people share their story of trauma so that I knew there's beauty the next day. I wish I knew, you know, so many people go to sleep thinking like I would be better if this ended No, you wouldn't. Like my whole passion now is like, I want people to know there's beauty after the storm and your entire life can be taken away from you and you get to say what the next page is. I studied,
0: you know, science, um, the hard sciences, chemistry. So keep your
2: emotions out of
0: it. Right, exactly. I mean, I studied cells that you find in the intestines, So maybe there wasn't too much emotion (laughs) to begin with, with that. If you go to medical school, you always have bedside manners. Mm -hmm. But if you go and study or practice in a field where you're dealing with homicides, or like you said, sexual assaults, things that are really hard to deal with, I feel like just having no insider knowledge, just what I know from the podcast and all the shows that my husband hates watching with me that sometimes they do, it does sometimes feel like they keep their emotions out of it. And I was like, And I get that you can't attach yourself to every single thing because I would have to cry myself to sleep at night. Would that be the case? You know, if I were working an investigation like that, but it does seem like a space where there is room for human connection, but it's not. I guess I just don't know what the bedside manner of a scholar or a police officer in criminal and very hard investigative cases like this is.
2: I think... It's just listening and listening is probably the greatest skill that a human being could have and not trying to justify things away, but being vulnerable and honest and transparent, honesty and transparency goes a hell of a lot further than an answer does or a lie does. Right. So false hope for feelings. That's one of the things I talked to law enforcement about, you know, they said, God, she calls every day. What does she want me to say? And I get it. I mean, like I'd be annoyed as all get kind out of too. Like I'm frustrated. I'm mad at myself for not solving the case. I don't know what else to tell her. And I said, tell her the truth. Hey, Ashley, um, it's good to hear you. You know, I I have uh, Julie's picture on my desk right now. Um, I'm so sorry that I don't have any answers for you, but you know, how's your day going? I'm keeping her case on my desk, you know, that's it. I don't have any other answers for you. And it's like, at least you picked up the phone. Some of my family said like, at least answer the phone. Because the reason is like, I have nothing else to say. And so I get that there's a frustration There's a lot of things to be doing. But the element of literally, like that mom said, I didn't come for anything other than for someone to hear my voice and to validate me. So I used to find solace in where you said, How do people deal with that? You know, I used to find solace in the fact that I didn't have trauma in my life like that. I mean, I've been through some heavy stuff, but not death and not violent sudden loss. And so I would get in the car and I would call my husband and I would say, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so lucky for our daughter, you know, whatever else was going on in my head every time I would talk to a family and just. You grateful for what I had. And I think when I lost it, I saw how valuable, like you were saying, words are from other people. So if I said, I'm really mad right now, I'm mad at God right now. I don't need someone to say, well, don't do that, Ashley. God is, you know, God is your protector and he's got buddy in his hands and blah, blah, blah. It's like, just say, I can completely understand that. I'm so sorry you feel that way, you know? And I, I get it. I can't imagine, right? Because you can't. And so instead of trying to justify away my feelings, to validate my feelings as crazy as they could be (laughs) is some of the most powerful things somebody could do. And so I think that's all that it is, is listening and validating human conditions that I'm hurting, I'm struggling, I'm scared, right? We're all the same. At the end of the day, we're all the same. And so to just say, what would I want to hear if I was in that position, it's that I can't, you know, I can't understand what you're going through, but my God, I'm here. My arms are around you. You're safe. What can I do for you and mean it? You know, and those kinds of things. It's just words can go a long way. And even just silence and being there and listening can sometimes go even further.
0: So you said that you were interviewing these families in order to gather data. And we've talked a lot about kind of the emotional component of dealing with these silent homicides. What quantitative data were you gathering and what was the end goal of collecting that data
2: so if you look at the publications that i have and the research that i publish that is the data that i have so i'm ultimately i'm a storyteller which is crazy because we are trained as scientists to really express ourselves in scientific ways and so i automatically gravitated towards qualitative storytelling because in my head if i said as a mother how are you grieving a scale of one to five a four doesn't really tell me anything. But if a mother tells you she stays up every night, she's losing her hair, her teeth are falling out. Uh, she has nightmares and vivid P, you know, PTSD episodes. That tells me how she's doing. A four, not so much. So I, I did do a couple on um, the IES scale, the impact event scale. I tried to do some of that early on. But as you know, you need a really big sample to have numbers mean anything. And I was just in the nitty gritty of these gorgeous, heartbreaking, beautiful stories. And so I ended up interviewing 25 families and that's been the basis of a lot of the publications that I've done. I tell their stories. And so what I did is I looked for thematic ideas throughout the storytelling. And I would see, you know, grief judgment is a paper I'm working on now. I would see, I'm calling it the Goldilocks effect. So note that Dr. Ashley Wellman, 2020. Um, (laughs) But I call it the Goldilocks effect. And it really could relate to grief in general, but families would tell me about how it was never enough or good enough the way they were grieving, that they were always grieving too much, they were grieving too little, but it was never just right. And so they they talked about the enormous stress of people saying like, why are you happy right now? Why are you crying? It's been three years, get over it. And that kind of uh, up and down that they faced, depending on who they were talking to, they either weren't grieving enough, they weren't grieving, they were grieving too much. And You know, now I'm going, my God, I experienced that with miscarriages. I experienced that with buddy's death where everyone had an image in their head of exactly what I should have been doing. My colleagues did the three that hurt me. They knew exactly what I should have been doing. My in-laws knew exactly what I should be doing. My parents knew exactly what I should be doing, but no one was walking the path that I had to walk. No one was watching his baby girl. No one was waking up in the middle of the night when she called out for her dad. And so the fact that you think you know how I should be reacting Or you're angry if I'm out having a glass of wine, or you're angry when I talk about the fact I want to love again, those kinds of things. It's like, you're not living this life. And there's so much emphasis on perfection of grief, right? And so to me, I can't tell you that with a number. I can tell you that with anecdotal stories. And then when you get a bunch of those anecdotal stories together, that's where that qualitative research starts to say, hey, everyone, but one person express this kind of pressure and 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 like i said you can even go further than that and say it's not even just homicide that is grief you know you look at a a sister and a brother grieving the death of their parent and the way they grieve differently there becomes animosity between the two of them saying like you need to calm down you need to stop and another one saying well maybe you should act like you care a little bit more and that debate that goes between every family member it's a real thing and so it's been really cool for years i've been using you know, the same stories and adding stories along the way, but the same stories, because that is a timeless account of grief. I will forever have that person's story as part of my arsenal of uh, storytelling that I can do for these families.
1: So, I am a brutally honest friend, and you mentioned a brutally honest friend that kind of told you, Ashley, you need to get it together and move forward. So, can you talk to us about? What this friend said to you kind of made you decide to to move forward and make some changes. And I have a feeling this is where the book comes in.
2: It is. Oh, it is. And it makes me so happy. You can just see the way my face changes. I'm like watching our video. Um, yes. Okay. So thank God for honest friends. You guys are priceless. I have a lot of them. I have one. I was trying to pick my pictures from my website. She's like, that one's terrible. And I'm like, well, there's that. Delete. <laughs> so... And she's like, I love you a lot. I said, I know you do, or you wouldn't have told me. Uh, So no, thank God for honest friends. It's hard because grief is, is a beast. And I think I had friends I never expected to pick up and come across country literally every weekend for almost six months, the point where I was like, I hate people being in my house. And then they'd say, Oh, you know, can we come? And I'd be like, and they'd book a ticket anyway. And looking back, thank God people did not listen to me. And they did what you know, what I needed at the time, which was love and compassion and people around me. Um, but this one friend was one of the few people I was new in the city. I didn't have anybody here when, when Buddy passed away. And here I am as a single mom trying to hold it all together. And, and he would come by and make sure like, Hey, have you been out recently? Like, have you gotten out to get lunch? Have, do you want to go grab a glass of wine? And I, he saw a picture of Reagan, my daughter dancing with her posable skeleton. So she's had a best friend Fresno since she was two years old and he's a three foot posable skeleton. And this friend of mine saw a picture of her dancing with him in October of 2018. It was Halloween. And he said, that is the scariest and coolest picture I've ever seen in my life because it's so macabre. This kid should be terrified of a skeleton because society tells her to be terrified of him. And yet she sees, you can see it in her face. She sees ultimate joy and friendship with this being and he said, I think you should step away from some of the heavy things that you've been working on and give yourself permission just to write a children's book. Maybe little did he know you do not tell Ashley Wellman to do anything and not expect it done like 24 hours later with, you know, a glossy cover or whatever. So I walked back into his office and I said, can I read you this children's book I wrote? And he's like, uh, I told you that 48 hours ago. And I said, I know. While I was driving around the car, I recorded on my phone. I wrote it up. And now the story's morphed a little bit since then. But I read in this book and he, you would just see it in his face. He was like, this is, this is a thing. This is amazing. And uh, I got partnered with Zachary Thomas Kincaid. I don't know if you guys know Thomas Kincaid, but he's the painter of light. He's freaking amazing. He was an amazing artist. His nephew, Zach is better than Thomas was. Don't tell the Thomas Kincaid collectors, but he is better than his uncle was. And Zach's only, you know, in his late twenties and He's such an amazing artist. And I remember asking him, hey, Zach, do you want to be my partner on this children's book? And he's like, ah, I'm an artist. I'm not an illustrator. And I said, I know, I know that. And that's exactly what I want. I want an art story. Because what my friend Fresno was about, it's called The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. It again started as this way for me to heal and start to kind of process grief and trauma and i had kissed buddy goodbye in the hospital and said i promise i'm going to make your daughter a magical life and that is the hardest promise i've ever made in my life and then i thought what if this children's book she is forever going to be a character in a children's book this is one way i could do that i can make it magical so when all the disaster at work happened and my heart was broken about that this same friend gave me a couple weeks to process it. He was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. My other colleagues were heartbroken. And then he said, it's time to get over it, right? It's done. Nothing's gonna change it. All this, they're not thinking about you. Their heart is not breaking like this but you are losing who you are. You're not, because I told him like, I'm not the woman I want to be. My daughter deserves better than this. I'm crying all the time. My daughter had come in all the time and said like, are you crying because of work? And I said, yeah, like, that's really sad. <laughs> this is because of work with everything we've been through. I'm crying because of work again. And he said, you've got to stop. And I said, well, I'm not good at anything else. I'm not good at anything else. And if I'm not Ashley, Dr. Ashley Woman, the scholar, then who am I? And that's where he said, I'm just going to have to call bullshit on this. Because one, you're always Dr. Ashley Wallman, the scholar, because like Audrey Hepburn said, right, you can never be overeducated or overdressed or anything like that. And so I will forever be a teacher, a scholar, an advocate. And i am you can't take my degree away from me or any of those accomplishments. But I also don't have to necessarily be broken and indebted to something that crushes my soul. So he said, think about All the things that that job requires from you, a love of other people, teaching, which is my passion, creativity, because like I said, I couldn't make Broadway, but dang it, my classroom is my stage every day I walk out there and and do my thing. And so he said, what, what could that translate into? You can be whatever you want to be, right? You tell Reagan that all the time. And I thought, okay, okay, okay. So I cried a lot. I called a therapist and I marched myself down to the courthouse and I opened a small business, uh, and. I didn't look back and I said, okay, I'm going to take Fresno and make him something that's going to make us thrive, not just survive the death of Buddy. And so I remember calling Zach back. I said, it's about to get real. (laughs) Hold the phone. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to step out and I'm going to make the girl who danced with skeletons, my friend Fresno, the start of a franchise that is about inclusivity and love and friendship and acceptance and this ability to say all the things that scare us in our lives pivoting starting something new losing the love of your life surviving the death of your dad having a limb disorder having a learning disability whatever it is that makes somebody scary it's only scary because we won't talk about it because it's misunderstood but if we embraced it we would learn that all of these different things about us the things that make us different make us super special and together we're better for it. And so that was really the the passion behind the girl who dances with skeletons, my friend Fresno. And now it's really just taken on legs that give me the chance. Like I told my families, you can't go back to the life you want. It's not there. So it's up to you. You have the power and it's the hardest power you have to go and rewrite what you want the rest of your life to look like. And you can't let the naysayers or the people who want to pull you down, you either let them write it or you write it. And I was going to be damned if I let somebody else write it.
1: <laughs> Both Julie and I read the book because you sent us a copy of it and absolutely loved it. I want to buy it for all of my nieces and nephews. Adult friends, Yes. And, it's, and
2: girlfriends. It is I a, think- it's a great book for us as adults. Like someone, yes. told me, someone told me the other day, it was really funny because I wrote it truly as a way for Reagan to be a character in his story and the love of her, her, friendship with the skeleton, I thought, what a precious little story. Now, two years into the endeavor, and as much as I've grown, I'm like, okay, someone told me the other day, you're Fresno. And I said, no, I'm not. (laughs) That's a posable skeleton. And they said, no, 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 just listen to me really quick. You've been stripped to the bone of every identity you thought that you were, mother, professor, wife, and like broken down, terrified because you don't know who you are and where you fit and whatever. And it just takes one or two people to kind of like Adopt you and love on you to say you're amazing and I want to dance with you. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's do this and to really regain that kind of, of, um, excitement. And then, you know, Reagan's this amazing being in person, but in the book, she exemplifies what I tell her, right? Reagan, you're forever different. You're right. And I validate her feelings. You lost your dad. It's not fair. It's hard, but you're also the most empathetic, kind human because of that, you make the best friend, you make the best supporter of all things and all beings. And it's that's what the book's about. So it's like all of us are either Reagan or Fresno in this book. And so it's like, who, which one are you? Because I'm gonna dance with you no matter which one you are. <laughs> I was just
0: going to say it's our Halloween episode and the scariest thing I heard was that the, probably all the adults and at least all of my friends are probably Fresno because the scariest thing is finding out who you actually are, getting stripped of all the titles that you thought you were or deserved or had and being broken down. Like that's the scariest thing that can happen to you after you turn 21 Mm -hmm. in my experience. So that, um, that hit a little close to
2: home for me. Right, but then, but then look at what Fresno found right when he said okay I am I'm this really terrified poor little Fresno, super scared no one wants to be his friend which happens when life changes happen. But you got to remember people are in your life for the moment when they're supposed to be there and then when life changes you find miracle humans like Reagan. Who step into your life when you never expected it right like our best friends are the ones we least expect and so. I think it's interesting because it is, it is scary and it is you're vulnerable and you self-doubt all of these things, but Reagan showed Fresno, we're different and it makes us all super special. And at the end of the day, because Reagan put herself out there to be friends with Fresno, she learned a lot of things too. And she became a better person, finding a friend where she least expected.
1: Julie, we're going to take turns being Reagan and Fresno Whenever you need me, I'll be Reagan, and vice versa.
2: <laughs> yes, girls, what was your favorite? Uh, it's probably images because the book truly is a piece of art. It's amazing. I think the story's precious and it speaks to so many people. But do you remember an image that was your favorite? I
0: was talking to Annika about this right before you got on. I don't know exactly which page it's on, but it's in the very beginning. I was like, "That's okay,
2: describe it to me and I'll tell I you what page Anika. it's on.
0: Because the book to me like full disclosure, I'm going through a very personal thing at work. And I was like, Annika, this image of the skeleton hanging up in the classroom, I think it's going to haunt me in bed tonight because not because it's scary, but I was like, oh my God, how could I have a better metaphor for my life
2: than just like, (laughs) you're out in the corner, just staring at everything and watching it go by, watching it go
0: by. I was like, that's actually, that's a really powerful image from my perspective. After reading the book, it was like, Him trying to put himself in this situation where he has this interaction with the kids and um, like a social circle, but maybe still wasn't accepted the way that he quite wanted to be yet. Until he, you know, fully got the chance to dance with his friends. So personally, that was my
2: oh, I love that. That's right when Fresno figures out he's telling Reagan about his backstory. And just for everyone listening. I had, I had the first review that someone wrote was like, this is scary skeleton who's super friendly. And I was like, there's not an ounce of Fresno that's scary. Not any of the images, nothing. It is hilarious how Zach captured the kindest, softest soul in a skeleton it is from the start I remember there's one picture in there where he's alone and he's doing a cave drawing of being alone and I cried when it came into my email box because I felt so sad for Fresno and so like I know the image you're talking about in the classroom he's hanging he tells Reagan I used to hang around the classroom where I could watch the kids having fun and he tried to join them and he's really sitting there watching thinking like I want to be part of this so bad and they won't let him I have two that were my
1: favorite. I I also have to say, I love all the puns in it. Ah,
2: Thank you. Didn't make no bones about it, right? (laughs) Loved
1: all of the puns, um, which is, I assume, like having, I don't have kids, but I assume it makes reading these stories over and over to your kids so much more enjoyable. Like, I enjoyed all of the puns in it, but my two favorite pictures are... The one when he's watching the scary movie, <gasps> where he goes to pieces. Yes, I yes. Love- and then I also love the jaw dropping when he's oh, looking
2: at the art. I just—he's looking at the Mona Lisa. Yes, in the, <laughs> in the art gallery. Love yes. all the puns. Yes, Reagan has painted the Bona Lisa, which is a skeleton Mona Lisa. And um, poor Fresno is an amazing art critic. And so he says her work is jaw-dropping. That is one of my favorites. I remember my brother-in-law Brian said, Oh, it's like the Bona Lisa. <laughs> and I was like, Can I can I use that? And I put a little plaque underneath the, the Mona Lisa. And it was great. And that was the coolest part. It was such a process. And people who just fearlessly loved me, like if I told them I was gonna make you know a circus with I don't know performing dogs they'd say that's great where do I get a ticket and they've been so honest and amazing Zach has been the best business partner because even with my story right the story was written and he had the cojones to be like I don't like this sentence you need to write something different and I'm going to draw this picture and he would show me the picture I'm like oh this is genius right, and Yes. And then he would trust me, but he was so right. And he did so much thoughtful work behind the scenes of saying like, you know, top illustrators are doing this and, and children's stories have these arcs and this, and I feel like this might be missing. And so the backstory actually Fresno hanging in the classroom was not part of the original story. He said, I need a reason to love Fresno because you love him. And I need to know, he's like, I don't know the backstory. So um, a reader needs a reason to love him. So he didn't know what that backstory was, which is where yeah, you know, that picture comes in and a couple other pictures there. But it was neat, things like that. It was a really reflexive process and it was an amazing experience doing it with a business partner, with all the friends who helped me with it.
1: I saw on your Instagram that you guys got all of those shipping materials. So when is the book coming out?
2: Oh my gosh. So when this airs, I will already have, are you ready for this? 10,000 copies of the book in my home. So my home is quickly becoming a distribution center. <laughs> I have the precious little plush doll. Yes, right. I have my own little Barnes and Noble. So I have the plush doll that I designed. What's funny is that I wrote this book two years ago and it's just coming out October of 2020. And I wrote it in October, 2018. It's a long process, but it's finally here. It's really scary. Talk about Halloween. This is scary because it's real, but I have a bunch of plush dolls upstairs already. I have puzzles. I have a 500 piece adult puzzle and then I have all the books coming. And so it's, amazing because i cannot wait for this message to get out there it's so beyond halloween i have a lot of people that say like i can't wait i hope i get it by halloween and i said you don't understand fresno is the greatest friend year round it is solely about a story of friendship and love and acceptance so it's not just for halloween but it's going to be here literally within two weeks i've got i think two fedex trucks (laughs) coming full of it so i have currently cleaned my garage i have an art room upstairs that's being transitioned into a distribution center and likely we have to win a storage unit, but we're going <laughs> to wait
1: for that. Okay. I work in marketing. And so I'm like, my wheels are turning. You need to create, if you haven't some sort of little note to go inside.
2: That's like packed with love from Reagan. It says, to be honest, T-I-B-I-A, tibia. Honest, we couldn't have done it without you. And it's I love it. <laughs> yeah, leave it. us a review, follow us on social media, all of that. Um I have that. I almost bought custom packing tape to have his face on the packing tape, but I'm a small business, mama's just getting started. So, um I did do the little label I have stickers that are going to go inside of it and actually we sold 150 plush dolls this summer before the book even came out. And Reagan signed every single thank you card. We hand wrote and she signed at age five at the time, five six, wrote her, her name for every single person. And it was such a cool experience. She's like, Oh my gosh, how many do we have today? And I can't get her to do a lot of stuff, but she was committed. That girl is Fresno's best friend, but she's also the best little marketer I could have asked for.
0: So does she how does she feel about being front and center in this? First off. Uh, is is she blonde? Is this, is she? Is, she is
2: blonde. Do you want to see her real quick? Let's see if we can get her. Hold on.
0: <laughs> oh, hello. I think, Hold on.
1: I think Fresno is a terrific friend.
2: You do. I do too. Why is he a good friend? Um, Because he's special to me. Um, What do you guys do together for real? What, like In the book, we do a lot of really cool things, but in real life, what do we do with Fresno? I
1: dance with
2: him and we bring him on so many adventures. And what do you, you know, Fresno is very different than you. Is it scary when people are different or is it special when people are different? It's tiny bit crazy, but it makes them special. It's a little bit crazy, right? Because you get to learn about new things and new experiences, but it makes them so special, right? That's the best. What is your favorite
1: song to dance to Fresno? Um, I would
2: say all. Um, I don't really know since a lot of songs are good. A lot of songs are good. She likes Barbie Girl a lot. That's a really good song. Can you tell the girls what's your favorite uh, page in the book? Um, I would say all the pages. But you have one favorite. What's your favorite? I know what it is. Jump what? Tell me. Where you're jumping on the bed. Jump, 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 jump. Yeah. Why is that your favorite? What are you doing in that picture? You invite him out to play and you guys jump on your bed? Um, it's because I show him all my toys and be kind to him. Yes. You're showing him all your toys and you're kind to him. Thank you, Reagan. Please, everybody, be super special to people who are different and be super special yourself. Ah! <laughs> oh my God. She's adorable. She's the greatest. (laughs) She's the greatest. Um, she actually the other night, it's funny because I can sometimes feel buddy, like talking to me through her or some wise human, whoever it is talking through her. I'm a little, like a loose top and bud was like my anchor. And thank God, my dear friend who convinced me to write, he's like an anchor too. But, um, when they're not here, (laughs) right, I'll get super upset and we're going to be like, breathe mama. It's going to be okay. You are perfect just the way you are don't worry it's going to be okay you you made this so it's going to be perfect and I'm going oh my god thank you so I'd be lost without this six-year-old next to me I'm grateful she's my business partner too
1: she's so wise for a six-year-old I think at the age of six I was like I don't know I definitely wasn't saying to be wise I was probably watching Barney still
2: <laughs> Yeah, she's funny she's really funny she's a very very smart kid
0: well, it must be, I mean, incredible now at her age just to be, you know, the main character in this book, but it's going to be such a fun journey, you know, growing up and looking back on this book, you know, when she grows up and, and to see what you did for her, that's going to be really awesome.
2: I think that's the coolest part because people ask me now, like, well, Ashley, what happens if you fail? You're a single mom. You're like, what are you doing? And I thought, fail? You can't fail. I mean, I've got it. It's here. So whether I donate them all to a children's hospital or whether this becomes my business, it's I did it, and forever Reagan's gonna to say I was a character in She told me that she told me the other day. She said, "You know how at school, you know, Corona's ruined everything." Um, but she said, "You know how at school we get to dress up as our favorite character in a book." I said, "Yeah." She said, "I'm gonna dress up as me," and then she said then I can bring our book. And I thought this is the coolest thing ever because she's right. Forever, it's almost like the amazing Amy. Thank. Hopefully, she doesn't go crazy like she does. But. Overall, what I, I remember when I watched Gone Girl, one of the coolest things was like, how cool would it be to be the main character in a children's book series? And then here I am, you know, years later, like I said, let's let it end at being amazing, Amy, and not- <laughs> I
1: literally- was thinking about Gone Girl when you were talking about like her growing up with a character and I was like oh my god it's like don't uncle- do it
2: <laughs> don't worry every as if you're any other mom's listening you know like the I put so much pressure on myself as a mother so anytime something goes wrong or she won't listen or literally the other day she took scissors to my couch because she's an artist and I I did not handle it well I did not handle it well it, there wasn't enough wine in the world to help it but um I remember being like that's it that's it former, like, she's going to be a future drug addict. She's definitely going to be doing this and that. Like, it just, I went dark real quick. I went, this is it. This is a sign of, you know, bad things coming. (laughs) Calm down. She's really great. Kids do some real crazy, exhausting things, but
1: I mean uh, scissors is not great Sharpies also aren't great aren't, aren't great <laughs> no.
2: We had to talk a lot about how many20 dollar bills that couch was made of Oh I,
1: it was a good money lesson for me. yeah them. and how many how toys snowbooks will we have to sell mm-hmm. in order to buy and a new how
2: many of couch? our toys do we have to donate that would equate to this couch it was not a, it was not a beautiful week in our household. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned before that you are a planner to the T and that, you know, this is your newest venture. This is your newest franchise. So what are the next steps for Fresno?
2: I want Fresno to be, like you said, a a body of stories that kids can go to define themselves in Fresno's stories. And so we actually have books two and three already written. They're in my illustrator's hands again, long process, especially when you work with an artist like Zach, he is literally the most incredible perfectionist. And I wouldn't trade it for the world because you're holding and you see the quality work that he does. Um, I wouldn't trade him for the world. So I know in my head what my timeline needs to be to get these books done. So he has scripts for books two and three, which is Fresno Finds His Heart. Which is a play kind of on the Wizard of Oz, but about the fact that um, Reagan reads in the Wizard of Oz at the very beginning and just says, you know, so that's how Dorothy finds her way home. And he says, uh oh, I don't have a heart. And so they go on this quest for his heart. They get distracted along the way because Fresno is so needed in the community. So he loans his arm to a firefighter and all these other things to reach, you know, help people. And by the time he gets home, he's super depressed that he didn't find his heart and yet he had it all along. And Reagan hugs him and says, but don't, don't worry. If you forget, I'll be there to remind you. So it's this idea of sometimes we have things inside of us all along, but you really have to learn to discover those yourself. Kind of like my friend told me, Ashley, get up and let's go. You got it inside you, but you got to feel it. No one can make you feel that. And then um, we have Fresno's First Christmas, which is precious. It's merging cultures. Fresno clearly has his own cultures of what the holiday season would look like. And Reagan trying to teach him about Christmas. And so it's a very sweet play on um, merging cultures and how, when you put them, why not just do them both, right? Celebrate the way Fresno celebrates the holidays and Reagan and see what you can learn from each other.
1: I love that. And you mentioned in the beginning, you loved Wizard of Oz. So coming full
2: circle there. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Dorothy was my, my ultimate role. I did play the scarecrow once in a high school musical. Uh, I was very angry because Dorothy was blonde. Katie, I still remember Katie. If you're listening, I remember you got Dorothy. She was blonde. I was devastated, but I made a a great scarecrow, uh, but I got cast. I didn't have to audition. So that was the key there.
1: (laughs) I assume you might be a wicked fan as well then.
2: Very much so. Yes. Yes. I've never seen it live, which is crazy, Although oh, I have seen I'll Hamilton, see that's your which fun fact was... is you're obsessed with live theater and
0: you haven't seen Wicked live? I
2: know. I know. I've seen some very obscure things. So I'm the one who goes to the TKTS office and I'm like, oh, wait, you have two tickets left for the weirdest show on earth. Here (laughs) I come. And I've seen some really great things. I saw Matthew Broderick, um, Nice Work, If You Can Get It. It was one of the greatest uh, performances I've ever seen. Had no clue what it was about. So I do those kinds of things a lot where I'll grab tickets to something that's a little bit more obscure and go. But yes, Wicked's on my list
0: one of those things where my mom pulled me out of school like in middle school she's like oh you have a dentist appointment and then took me out she's like "Psych, we're gonna go see Wicked I was like
2: was
0: like ugly
1: crying in like my mom's minivan I was like we're gonna go see Wicked Live
2: like it was a beautiful moment what an amazing mama
1: I know for real my mom just like took me out to go to the dentist yeah my mom's was like for real you're
2: going to the dentist get yeah. in the car <laughs> we talked about
0: some very heavy topic, and so we just like to learn a little bit of the lighter side. And I just want to say, reading some of your fun facts, I think that we really were ships in the night when we were younger because all of these things you have in your list. Like, I was a mascot in college. What? Yeah, I was an eagle.
2: Oh my god, I was a dolphin. First yes. off, how do you how do you be a dolphin? There's a lot of hip action and some body rolls going on, and um, <laughs> as a good Christian girl, you know. I had a mask on, so it was all good to go. Um, but yeah, a lot of dirty dancing and body rolls, I think, were key. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's amazing. I have a sick affinity. I'm not not a real sick affinity because there's some people like that too. But I've got a weird obsession with other mascots. Like I feel a joy and a bond with mascots at events. I once went to a citrus bowl and they had a mascot pregame. And I got to get in the circle and like see these mascots. And, and Reagan, quote unquote, needed to go hang out with them. Oh my God, I've never been more joyful in my life to, to be hugged by a bunch of different mascots. There's a ultimate affinity that doesn't go away once you've been a mascot.
0: There really isn't because my old company is a very large and they have this massive convention and they had their own mascot at this company. We probably outsourced the role. But I reached out to HR, was like, FYI, I have mascot experience. If you need somebody, let me know because I'm ready to sit in a hot outfit for three days. And I also called, so I used to live in Kansas City. I also cold called, called
2: the KCT Bones, which is our minor league baseball team. And they definitely rejected me. So I'm not going to. Now, listen, I, at age 17, went and auditioned for the Pensacola Ice Pilots and the Barracudas for their mascot. I, there were like 300 people out there. I won I won because those body rolls were on point. Then I came home and I told my parents and they were like, you're not doing that because I would have been traveling with a men's hockey team and I'm with a men's indoor football team. So I did once get to play misconduct, which was a girl who had to distract guys in the penalty box. That also quickly got shut down by my parents. So that was the end of the Pensacola Ice Pilots and Barracuda experience for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you were talking
1: about the circle of mascots is literally my worst nightmare Um, i loved it hate mascots i don't know what it is but i think i just imagine that inside every mascot is a serial killer no it's cute people like julie and me us Yeah, yeah now that i'm gonna picture you guys inside of there this might I might have different feelings towards mascots, but I just am so weirded out by mascots. They totally freak me out.
2: Like, who knows what they're thinking? I will literally
1: run away. We go back to a lot of our college football games, and if I see the mascot coming towards me, I will run in the other direction. I kind
2: of push people out of the way. Like, I'm the mean mom who's like, get out of my way! My kid's gonna get them! I'm like, picking her up and running. So that she can get a picture next to the horn frog or the gator or whatever else. <laughs> I love. That. That's kind of an exaggeration. It's kind of an exaggeration. I don't push anybody out of the way, but I'm very aggressive in my stance.
1: <laughs> of being aggressive, what's something that you have maybe an aggressive opinion on that nobody agrees with you?
2: I despise mayonnaise. I cannot, anything that has like a, heavy cream sauce or a mayonnaise in it you better hide it real good because I can't do it that and corn I don't do good with corn unless it's in a salsa
1: you're if- from the south and you don't like mayonnaise or corn correct
2: <laughs> correct it's not it's not a real good look on a southern girl but
1: <laughs> I feel like mayonnaise is like it's like ranch in the midwest like in the south you put mayonnaise in everything it's like- I love ranch
2: i love ranch especially ranch at a salad bar one that's like a fresh ranch it's really cold not the kind in a bottle that's too thick but the runny mess at the salad bar at a ruby tuesday salad bar or jason's deli salad bar get out it's almost like i'm running for a mascot i'm gonna push you out of the way and come get you
1: (laughs) you're just at the salad bar
2: spooning it in your mouth (laughs) one piece of lettuce at a time it's great
0: You wrote your children's book and now your series of children's book, but you're writing a story about your life. What would your autobiography be called?
2: Fearless or metamorphosis. Something about taking on the world with no apologies in the most kind and loving way. I
1: think that would be a great title and definitely one would make me buy the book and two accurately describes, I think, everything you've shared with us.
2: Fearless may be a stretch that may be what I want the book to be called because everyone else would tell you that I definitely have plenty of fear. Um but I I'm I'm learning the older I get that it can't cripple you the way that it has so much in the past and that life isn't guaranteed there is no promise for tomorrow and so if you really want it I can't tell you how many things I had planned in the future that I really wanted and they got taken away. So it's like if you really want it, there's never enough money. There's never enough time. It's never the right moment. Just go do it.
0: I was looking away from our Zoom call because Metamorphosis was the name of one of my favorite first CDs from Hillary Duff. I'm like, Ooh. she she had all the good advice at a young age with
2: her Metamorphosis CD. So, so I was Alanis more set when I was angry in the car.
1: I actually was just looking at Hillary Duff that Hillary Duff CD the other day really because I added it to my bachelorette playlist. (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) Y'all think of me
1: when you hear it then. Yes. So we're doing a camp theme. I put on throwbacks. Uh, Just a whole playlist of throwback songs from the radio Disney days, and the are y'all Spice
2: Girl fans? Oh yeah! You need two becomes one because I remember how sexy that song was when we were teenagers, and none of us were having sex. Yeah, I remember (laughs) (laughs) how sexy that song was.
1: To become one. Oh yeah, that and like body rolls. It was the body rolls of the dolphin that
2: I would do to that song. Body (laughs) rolls.
1: My body rolls definitely were not that good at like the age of 10, but. Neither are
2: mine, trust me. There's something about a huge animal costume that makes everything look a little bit, a little bit more graceful.
0: Our Instagram listener, Lauren Nicole 823 asks, do you feel your field is represented
2: well on TV and or movies? I don't to be honest. And I'll tell you why. I think the biggest misconception about my field is that we are the forensic team or that we're the crime scene analysts that are going to be the ones at the crime scene. And we're not. Uh, my parents will still tell people that. They're ultimately so proud. They're beaming from ear to ear and, you know, their eyes are sparkly when they're like, my daughter." studies murder. She's like the CSI people. In the background, I'm going, no, I'm not. But I let them have their day. It's fine. I'm actually, I studied the science behind why people commit crime and the way that the system works. And then again, for me, I work with the victims' families. And so the media, like I was telling you guys earlier, becomes such a blessing, but such a curse in these cases. And so what I use, my platform is to advocate for the families and for the victims. And the media so often likes to do a little bit of both. They're great because they bring attention to the case, but they're also very good at positioning the story so that other people feel safe, that they understand the community where this murder happened was great. And there's some explanation for why that victim was vulnerable. Maybe they use drugs you know, and maybe drug use really meant they had smoked weed, no big deal, but they'll portray them maybe as a heavy drug user or um, a dancer or a stripper, right? When maybe that wasn't really the way that that individual lived their lives. And so I think you see a curse, my passion, my stomach sometimes turns where I go, oh no, go back and cover the family make sure you talk about the victim as a human being who was alive and a sister and a, you know, a mother and these types of things. And so I think that is where the media falls short. But on the other token, families would tell you the media can be more powerful than the police in solving these cases sometimes. And so I think that the victimologist in me, you don't see that side, one, because victims don't have a lot of people advocating for them but two, because the media really does like to focus on the offender and the crime itself. So I'd love to see more representation. I would love for people to to know what I do when I say, oh, I'm a criminologist. But at the end of the day, I don't care. I watch all the shows. I'm a huge true crime junkie. But I would tell you, as you watch these films, think about it from a more human element. The offender has a family who's struggling. The victim has a family who's struggling. And we don't often see those sides painted in the media.
1: So another one of our listener questions asks what do you do to stay positive in a job that focuses so much on traumatic events
2: that's radically changed from where it started remember it started with this idea that i didn't know trauma or grief the way that my survivors did and i just felt blessed to have the platform to share their stories and so it had always been gratitude and appreciation for the beauty around me And when Buddy passed away, I think I just shifted kind of the way that I looked at it because I had to dig deeper to find the beauty and fight for beauty and start to say how gracious I was for having my platform. So it wasn't even just now gracious for not having the experience, but now it was gracious for having the platform because those survivors were the key to my survival when I was going through trauma. And believe it or not, Shelly that I was telling you about from Kansas City that runs Corey's Network, she was one of the friends that would step up and call me and check in and say, hey, how's your heart? Hey, I see you smiling on Facebook, but how are you really doing? And she knew as a mother who had gone through grief and trauma, she knew what it was like to be taking care of a greedy child. She knew what it was like to be, you know, uh, experiencing loss of someone she loved. And so it's now this, wow, just this full circle of, every time I do my work, it's so much more personal now. And it's this idea that every story that I've heard has crafted my life in such a beautiful way. And so I think it's it's daily trying to find the beauty in the world, the beauty in the darkness, and realizing that, you know, you see the silly quotes that say, oh, flowers don't grow without the rain. It's so true. And that beautiful things can come after trauma. And so for me, it's really that reminder daily, look for the beauty even if it's a beautiful song or it's a flower blooming or it's Reagan's smile, if you always look around you, there's beautiful things. There's people who need you. There's people who are cheering for you to be healthy and happy. And so to me, that's the most beautiful thing somebody could ask for. Okay. That was a
0: perfect like end to question. So we'll just jump into You know, you you spoke a lot about a lot of topics and we're all really excited for your book to come out. So if listeners have questions either about your background or the new book,
2: how can they get in touch with you? I'd love people to follow the journey of Fresno. They'll get to really see the skeleton Fresno, Reagan and her precious face, and then the work that we're doing as Ashley, the author. So if they want to follow that journey, we're on all social media platforms at My Friend Fresno. And then they can shop and play on our website, www.myfriendfresno.com. And if anyone's interested in Dr. Ashley Wellman, the scholar and criminologist who always will be a scholar and a criminologist, they can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Ashley Wellman, or they can find me at my website, www.ashleywellman.com.
1: Well, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on.
2: This was so fun.
1: I might be a little bit biased just because the topic is so fascinating to me, but don't tell any of our other guests. This might have been my favorite interview. I love
0: it. Like
2: I went through the whole gamut of emotion. This is great. Roller
1: coaster of emotions. This is
2: really good for me because a lot of times people only want to know the sad stuff. And so I'm always telling the story just of Buddy's death, which it's, it's part of my story, which is empowering. But it's exhausting if that's all I talk about. So I love that y'all made me laugh. I love that you cared about my heart, my passion, my family. I love that Reagan got to see
1: something. Oh, yeah. That might be my favorite part of all of this is that we have a cute little Reagan on.
2: So cute. Yes, I'm very excited. So y'all were precious and you're so good at what you do. It's oh, This you. was fun. It was really friends being like, what are we doing next? And I like that. It wasn't stuffy. It was fun. I love the drink idea. It's all great.
1: If you have questions for us, DM us on Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast or send us an email at explainyourselfpod at gmail.com. And per usual, if you liked this episode, be sure to leave us a rating and a review on wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, it's not just our moms listening.